I got God bumps all over me. Mm. Welcome, 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 welcome. Welcome to everybody. But especially I want to welcome those that are here for their first time. If it is your first time, please know that we especially welcome you. We honor all paths to God. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. We have a welcome package. It's in the envelope on the glass table as you come through the double doors. Please pick one up. Take it home with you. Read a little bit more about us. We have a CD in there about our basic beliefs and who we are. But stay afterwards and have some coffee and tea with us. We'd love to get to know you better. I was going to wear my Ram jersey today, but I, I didn't want to cause any division, you know, within the congregation. I grew up in Anaheim and years ago they were our home team. Oh, it's so good to be here. You know, Denise read you a little bit about what the season of nonviolence is about. And I'm so grateful that we're celebrating it here this year because I think it's really important for us to focus on what good is happening in the world. You know, what a difference it makes. You know, when we, we tend into, to turn into the nightly news and all that's on there really is not good stuff, right? Because that's what the news is. A while ago, years ago, a few years ago, Oprah tried to start a good news uh, station and it, it didn't succeed because people like that bad stuff, you know? But here we want to focus on the good. Here we want to know that there's so much good in the world. There is so much going on that we don't hear about. Like the story we heard last week and the story we heard this week. And there's many, many more. Denise is right. If you go on Good News Network, and that's just one of them, stories. And you can, like, have it on your Facebook page so you get it, you know. And you just get all these great things that people are doing for each other. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful to read. And it fills me up anyway. So we are starting our New Year theme this year. And it is Awake and Alive We Thrive. And that's what we're going to be talking about all year long. Each month, we're going to take a little different aspect of that. And, and we're going to talk about what does that mean to be awake? You know, we can be awake and asleep. And what we're talking about being really awake, paying attention to those moments, being alive. And when we do that, we thrive. When we do that, we thrive. So each month, we're going to take a look at a little bit of different aspect of that. And for February, our theme is longing for belonging. So we're going to talk about longing for belonging today. And today's talk title is, Pick Me, Please. Pick Me, Please. I don't know if you can remember being a kid when it was time to divvy, divvy up teams, you know, and you're standing in the line and two of your classmates are saying, I want Sue, I want Paul, I want Joe, and you're just like, no, and you're going to be the very last one, and please, somebody pick me, right? That was torture. I don't know why they do it like that, you know? It was really torture. You know, but that whole idea of wanting to belong, wanting your classmates to want you to be on their team, that, that they respect you or admire you or they think you have some talent or they just want to play with you, right? I have a couple real memories from elementary school. I went to a, a parochial school for all 12 years, actually. But from first to eighth grade, it was a co-ed uh, school. And uh, I can remember, you know, and I so wish I could remember her name, was a girl that went through first to eighth grade with me, redhead, skinny as could be, her clothes were absolutely threadbare. It's like her little white uniform shirt had been washed so many times you could see through it. You know, and her skirt was old and, and, and not new, and, and her hair was always a little bit unkept, you know, like she hadn't washed maybe. 
And we all knew that she came from a very poor family and that she was there on scholarship. And, and I remember as a child, you know, I was probably in the fourth grade, fifth grade, seeing her and my heart just going out to her because nobody wanted to include her. On the playground, she sat by herself. Um, and I remember one day just going up and talking to her because I just felt like, gosh, why is she sitting there all alone, you know? And I just remember the smile that broke out on her face and how happy she was to just be acknowledged, you know? And it's interesting that she stayed with me all these years, you know? I've got to, I almost wanted to go through my old boxes and find my class picture so I could remember her name, and they may do that. You know, another memory that I have, uh, my best friend in elementary school is Heather Burrell. And Heather, she had, came from a family of nine kids. We only had five. So hers was a big family, right? She had nine, she had a lot of brothers, and I only had one little brother. So it was kind of fun because she had big brothers, you know, would go over. And we, she was the kind of friend that you had to sleep over every other weekend with. You know, she came to your house, you went to her house, she came to And we were together, we were thick as thieves growing up, first grade, second grade, third grade. They had a cabin up in the mountains, and I would go and spend the, the time in the cabin with it. It was interesting. A family of nine, they had two beds cabin in the kids room there were three sets of three bunk beds like three up you know three uh, yeah so nine you know and one of the boys would get kicked out and I would get one of those bunk beds but I think it was about in fifth grade now I was tall and skinny and pretty awkward as a kid and I was this height by eighth grade so and and I was a skinny little kid and uh I always wanted to be like popular and be a dancer and be a cheerleader. I did make the drill team, but I think it's just because they needed another person on the drill team. But uh, my friend Heather went out for cheerleading, and that was the popular kids. You know, and in fifth grade, she made the squad. And I knew we weren't going to be friends anymore because she was now with the popular kids, and I wasn't. You know? That sense of... I don't fit in over there. I don't belong over there. Years later, I saw her at a Dave Mason concert, and it was just like everything was fine, and we were friends. But when you're kids like that, you know, it's like, don't talk to them. They're not part of our group. You know, we're the jocks, or we're the stoners, or we're the, the nerds, or we're the, you know, what group are you in? You know, do, do you belong? Are we all together? Are we separated? No. Brene Brown says, uh, a deep sense of love and belonging is an irreducible need of all people. We are biologically, cognitively, physically, and spiritually wired to love, to be loved, and to belong. When those needs are not met, we don't function as we were meant to. We break, we fall apart, we numb, we ache, we hurt others, we get sick. Brene Brown. Each month we're going to be using a book this year, and this month for February is Braving the Wilderness with Brene Brown. Now, Bobby tried to bring it into the bookstore, but the company we ordered from was out, so it is on Amazon in paperback. We couldn't get it in paperback, so anyway, Braving the Wilderness, Brene Brown, is the book we'll be using this month. We'll be taking it deeper, and when Reverend Megan does her deep dive at the end of the month on Wednesday night, she'll be focusing on that book. So just give you a heads up if you'd like to read that as we go along this month. So she says we are wired to love and be loved and to belong. So I ask you, where do you belong? Who is your tribe? 
your family, your friends, maybe a group that you have common interests with, maybe a group that you have a belief system with, maybe it's your spiritual community. Where's your tribe? Maybe you have more than one. Maybe you have different people that you connect with. The Urban Dictionary describes a tribe as a group of friends that become your family, right? We don't get to pick our family, but we get to pick our friends, and many people create their own family from their friends. The people that will be there for you no matter what and who you're guaranteed to have a good time with, your tribe. That's your tribe, according to the Urban Dictionary. You know, I always felt different. I did. I always felt different. I always felt apart from. I always felt like everybody else had the directions to life, and I somehow didn't get the book. You know, I always felt separate from. I always did. And I think that's one of the reasons I had this deep spiritual craving that I had, to find that thing. What was that thing that would make me fit in? You know, it wasn't until well into my adulthood that I really found my tribe, and I came to believe that I belonged. It's a story of toast, a story of toast. It's, I came across this story, and some of you may know, but there's some places up in the Bay Area where you pay $5 for a piece of toast. $5 or $4 for a piece of toast. I remember when Starbucks became popular in the coffee shops, those that were older than me were like, who would pay $4 for a cup of coffee, right? You know, I used to get it for 50 cents. Well, now toast for $4, $5, right? So this writer, he became very interested in this phenomenon, and he thought, now the Bay Area has really gone cuckoo. We've got all this tech money, right? And we're paying $5 for a piece of toast? What is going on, right? So he started to investigate it. And there were several places. It was like the new thing. There was the Red Barn, and there was the mill. And then he went to Petaluma, and there was a place in Petaluma that was doing it, and he thought, this is it's crazy. I got to get down to the bottom of this. How did this thing start? And so he traced it down. He thought maybe it was the mill. And he went to the mill, and um, the mill guy said, Oh, no, 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 we didn't start it. You need to go to a place called Trouble. And so he went to that place, and what he found there was a, well, it was a hole in the wall. It was a one-car garage that had been turned into a restaurant of sorts. It only seating was this little log out front that you could sit on. And when he got there, there were people sitting on the log. You know, have you been there? They've been sitting there eating, and, um, and the only thing that it served was coffee, uh, toast, cinnamon toast, coconut, and a, little, a grapefruit juice shot that was called Yoko. That was it. Those are the four things on the item, and the place was packed. The line was out the door, and people were paying $4 for cinnamon toast, right? And so he got to the bottom of it, and when he found out the owner, the owner's name was Giuletta Corelli. Giuletta Corelli, and she was a 34-year-old woman who um, was tattooed all over. She has freckles tattooed on your face, if you see her picture. She wears like a Jack Sparrow headscarf, you know, like the pirate, you know, in the movie. And she wears a crop top, black ripped up jeans, and brown lace-up boots. And that's what she wears all of the time. Now, her story is this, and this is what she told to John. John was the writer of the article. And she tells her story, and her story was that she... Uh, has schizo, I'm going to have to look it up. She was diagnosed with a um, disorder, schizoaffectual disorder, schizoaffectual disorder. And she wasn't diagnosed for very many years, and it's, it's a combination of schizophrenia and bipolar together. And so she would go through life, and she would lose days, sometimes months of her life, 
forgetting who she was. Not only forgetting where she belonged, I mean forgetting who she was. And uh, she went to college and she tried to skid forward. It's mostly she worked in coffee shops. And um, one year, 1999, she was going to Berkeley. You know, so she was intelligent. She was going to Berkeley. And uh, things were starting to fall apart. The wheels were starting to fall off again for her. And she took a long walk through the city and ended up in China Beach, which is on the west side of the Golden Gate Bridge. And when she got there, what she found is she found a group of Russian immigrants who were jumping in the water and it was freezing cold, and they were swimming there. And she found one gentleman reclining on a chair. His name was Glenn. And he explained to her that he used to come there swimming when he was younger, but now he just came and sunbathed, even though she says there was really no sun. You know, but he would lay on the chair, and he would watch the people swim. And she got to be friends with him, and they talked, you know. And uh, uh, in a, then shortly after, things fell apart for her, and she left the Bay Area traveled around the United States, and with this disease that she had, she couldn't hold a job, she couldn't finish school, because things would be going along, and then she would just forget. She would just forget. Five years later, in 2004, she came back to San Francisco, and she went to China Beach, and she found Glenn still on that chair, sunbathing. And she said for her, it was like a rooting. It's like she knew she could go there. The people there wouldn't kick her out. They wouldn't throw her away. She spent the day with Glenn, and when she left, he said, see you tomorrow. And that's what he said to her every day, and she stayed there for three years. She would go there, and she would sit, and she would journal, and she would write, and she would talk, and she was working at Farley's Coffee Shop in the Bay Area then, and one night the owner found her sleeping there. And he told her it was time to go. He had let her get by on many, many occasions. He said, it's time to open your own place. You know, so she went to Glenn and she says, I'm going to open my own place and I'm going to do this. And she had big dreams. And Glenn said, you don't even have any money to spend a, in a place tonight. You know? And he said to her words that changed her life. He said, what is it that you are good at? And she said, well, I'm really good at making coffee and talking to people. Right? And so she went ahead, he helped her, he told her maybe she should open a checking account, which she did, and then he coached her to get a small business loan, and friends and people loaned her $1,000, and she opened trouble. She served coffee. She had lived on three years on coconuts and grapefruit juice. Three years. She said, you can live on coconuts as long as you have the citrus. She had proved that to herself. She said, except when someone bought me dinner she said. So she served those items. And the cinnamon toast is what she was raised in. She came from an immigrant family, and her father was a tailor, and her mother was an ex-nun. And they didn't have much money. They lived in Cleveland, and they never had pie. But what they had for comfort food was cinnamon toast. And so that's what she knew. She called the shop trouble, she says, in honor of all the people who helped her when she was in trouble. She called her drip coffee guts and her espresso honor. She put coconuts on the menu because of the years she had spent relying on them for easy sustenance and because they truly did help her strike up conversations with strangers. She put toast on the menu because it reminded her of home. I had lived so long with no comfort, she says, and she built, she put build her own damn house on the menu because she felt with trouble that she had finally done so. And build your own damn house was a combination of all four of those things. It was like the big thing you could order, you know. So having found a sense of belonging to this group of people that came to China Beach, 
she was able to remember who she was. She shortly after that had the correct diagnosis, so she was able to get on the correct medication. Uh, she wears the same clothes because she says it helps people recognize her as she goes around the city. So they remind her who she is if she forgets, if she forgets. You know, about a year after the first uh, trouble opened, Glenn passed, but he did get to see the opening of it. She's opened three more, you know. And so that was the origins of the $4 toast in the Bay Area. She's went on to have twins. She was gone on to be successful. Uh, she did close that original one just very recently, but she has the two others still open. And it gives her a sense of purpose. It gives her a sense of belonging. It gives her a sense of tribe. There's still lines of people that line up to sit there. She says she purposely keeps them small because you have to talk to people when you're in that small space. And the people talk to each other. They talk to each other. The writer of the stories, he said he went there not long ago when he sat down and he ordered a toast and a coconut. And he said the man next to him kind of looked at him a little bit weird. And he said for a minute he felt self-conscious. But then the man said, can I have one of those coconuts too? Right? And you're just in that tight, tight-knit little group where you belong, where somebody sees you. How important is it for somebody to see you, to really see you? You know, when you walk by on the street to somebody and they look this way and you look that way, do you ever purposely look at them and say hello? Look at them and say hello? It, keeps, it catches people off guard. But it does bring a smile to the face to say hello. How are you today? Longing for belonging. That longing for belonging. Howard Thurman says, there is something in every one of you that waits and listens for the sound of the genuine in yourself. It is the only true guide you will ever have. And if you cannot hear it, you will all of your life spend your days on the ends of strings that somebody else's pulls. That somebody else's pulls. You know, belonging allows us to go out into the world. We're better able to stand alone when we have a sense of belonging. I know that was true for me. Once I became more secure in who I was and I had my tribe that I felt safe in, I could go out because I knew I could always come back, right? I knew I could always come back to my tribe. Uh, to stand together with others that have something that they're passionate about, something that's important to them, to stand together for peace, like this whole movement, you know, of the, uh, uh, of the season of nonviolence. It's a gift to have clarity of who we are and believe in what we believe in so we may act from that place, you know, our true north. What is our true north? True belonging is the spiritual practice of believing in and belonging to yourself so deeply that you can share your most authentic self with the world and find sacredness in both being a part of something and standing alone in the wilderness. True belonging doesn't require you to change who you are. It requires you to be who you are. That again is from Braving the Wilderness by Brene Brown. Be who you are. So what we're really aching for when we have this aching to belong is we're aching for a connection with our origins. We're aching for a connection with the divine. We're wanting to know God. We're wanting to know spirit. We might not call it that. We may not even know that's what it is. But we are aching for that union, 
that desire to know God, our desire to be in relationship, to have a home, to have people that we can be with, to have our pets. It's a desire to know God. What I experience as my longing for God is God's longing for me. We belong together. When we break it down to a simplest form, there's only one thing going on, you know? And when I sit with a person uh, that's going through something in a counseling session, if it's troublesome to get to the bottom of what it is, I remember this, that there's only one thing really going on. Somewhere there's a belief in separation. Somewhere we have a belief that we're separate from God. And there's only one answer, and it's oneness. And it's oneness. You know, so you can ask yourself that question when you're experiencing something. What's really going on? Somewhere I'm believing that God doesn't have my back. Somewhere I'm believing that I'm not one with spirit. Somewhere I'm believing that I'm separate from. Separation and oneness. Oh, I found this book. It's a Benedictine monk, Brother David Steinbast. And he writes this, and I think it's so beautiful what he says, because I think it sums up this whole thing we're talking about. In my best, my most alive moments, my mystical moments, if you want, I have a profound sense of belonging. At those moments, I'm aware of truly being at home in the universe. I know that I'm not an orphan here. There is no longer any doubt in my mind that I belong to the earth household in which each member belongs to all others. Bugs to beavers, black-eyed Susans to black holes, quarks to quails, lightning to fireflies, humans to hyenas and hummus. We are all one. We are all one. We belong to each other. We belong to life. We belong to love. There is only one thing happening here. Spirit expressing in all of its many variations as you and I. That's it. That's all that's going on. God bless you. So glad that you're here today. Glad that you're here. And we welcome Amber back. <laughs>